The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime! Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome everybody to Night Fright. Tonight, Joseph McBride joins us to discuss his new research and findings in his book, Into the Nightmare, My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett. Now, outside the studio tonight, I was just looking out the window, it's snowing, but it's more like a Christmas Eve snowfall. The light's glistening off. It's pretty beautiful, actually. It's a good night, folks. To settle back, get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of choice going, get in your most comfy chair, relax. Take this time for yourselves, you've earned it. Joseph McBride is the author of 17 books, most recently, Into the Nightmare, My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett. McBride was a volunteer worker in Kennedy's 1960 Wisconsin presidential primary campaign and spent 31 years, folks, researching and writing his investigative book, which is structured as a memoir of his personal journey in understanding the case. He spent six years in the 1970s playing a film critic in Orson Welles' legendary unfinished film, The Other Side of the World. He is a professor of cinema, as a matter of fact, folks, at San Francisco State University. Hi, Joseph. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks doing? for having me. Great to, great to be on the show. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Berkeley, California, where it's a thousand degrees warmer than it is here in Kingston, Canada. I, I bet it's still it's pretty chilly here, though. Oh, is it really? Yeah, it's been cold, and we've had a tremendous amount of rain. Uh, but, you know, compared to other parts of the country, we, we shouldn't complain. There you go. My uh, nephew is actually in San Francisco, so uh, he's going to uh, Stanford. Oh, great. So he said, I, he said, Uncle Brent, I'm never coming back. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my, my son. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get going, shall we? Now, you know, often on this show and in other uh, venues, what we discuss the the JFK assassination, we always gloss over the J.D. Tippett assassination as well. And this took place also, folks, November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, not long after President Kennedy was shot. I was wondering if you could put us in context that day. Now, the shooting takes place 38 minutes later, but let's back up to Dealey Plaza right around 1230. The shots are fired at President Kennedy. Are we able to track Lee Harvey Oswald's whereabouts at that point? Can we well, start there and move forward? 
he he said he was in the second floor lunchroom and uh, that there is evidence that that's where he was. He was accosted there by a policeman and uh, uh, the um, head of the Texas School Book Depository uh, about 60 seconds after the shooting. He was uh, had, had uh, or uh, pulled a coke out of the machine, was drinking part of it. So he was in the second floor lunchroom. He was. Uh, there were women who were coming down the steps from above, and they did not see him. He would have had to run by them if he had been upstairs. And so uh, he then went out the door, uh, probably a couple minutes later, three minutes later and uh, kind of drifted into the crowd. And, and then he uh, supposedly got on a bus, although there's, uh, we're not sure about that, and then took a cab. Um, and there was an older lady who wanted the ca a cab, and he graciously gave it to her. With, you know, he wasn't rushing. And he took a cab to uh, his rooming house in Oak Cliff, which was several miles away, a suburb. And uh, his um, housekeeper saw him about one o'clock, and then uh, he was in his room for about three minutes. And uh, some people claim he he got a gun. John Armstrong's book Harvey and Lee, which um, makes the case that there were two Oswalds, there were two people using that identity. Which, for a long time, I found that hard to believe. It's it's very hard to believe that there are many contradictory um, reports of. Oswald being seen in two places at once, for example, and we knew this for a long time, but Armstrong did such tre tremendous research that he proves the case that there were two people using that identity, which is not unusual in the spy world, and Oswald was, was an intelligence agent. So, uh, but he also proved that Oswald did not own the gun that they allegedly took from him, the one that allegedly killed Tibbet, and um, he did not own the rifle that they found in the Texas School Book Depository, which was the Mandelker Caracano was probably was certainly not um, capable of doing the shooting. The first rifle they said they found was a Mauser in any case. But he, he, there's no proof that he owned either of those weapons or any weapon. And then he uh, went outside and the housekeeper saw him. While he was in the room, a police car uh, pulled up and beeped its horn a couple times. And she said she saw two policemen in the car. And we don't know who they are exactly. Some people have speculated Tippett might have been one of them. Uh, and then Oswald is seen uh, by her leaving the house and standing by a bus stop at the corner. And then that's the last sighting of him until uh, a few minutes later, uh, Butch Burroughs, who was the guy who sold the concessions at the Texas Theater uh, in Oak Cliff, which was uh, not too far from Oswald's rooming house, said he saw Oswald enter about 107. And um, the official story is that Oswald didn't enter the the uh, theater until about 1:45, and the uh, ticket seller Julia Postal claimed that he uh, entered without buying a ticket, and uh, she was very distraught about telling her story. She seemed to be under a lot of pressure, and he was captured about 1:52 in the theater, and so in between, what happened? You know. Um, if he's at the theater at 107, he couldn't have shot Tippett because the Tippett shooting probably took place at 108 or 109. Tippett radioed into the uh, police dispatcher at 108, tried to signal them twice, and they didn't answer. And so we know that he was alive at 108, and uh, other witness testimony uh, reinforces that. Helen Markham, who was the star witness for the Warren Commission, who was a dubious witness, claimed that 
he was shot at 106. Other people think that could be true, but it's around that time. The Warren Commission tried to distort it, making it seem like he was shot as late as 115, uh, which would have given Oswald time to walk from the rooming house. Part of the reason it's hard to believe that Oswald did it is, you know, if Oswald's outside his rooming house at 103, 104, uh, he wouldn't have had time to walk the distance. I've walked that route several times, and it takes um, probably about 10 minutes to walk if you're not running. And uh, he wouldn't have had time to get there unless they pushed the time back. So the time is a very critical factor. Uh, and and uh, But he was, I don't think Oswald shot Tippett. I think somebody else shot Tippett. But one of the strange things about the Tippett case, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this and, and trying to work it out. There were about 20 people who saw parts of the event. Nobody saw the whole shooting. Tippett's car pulls up and um, somebody shot him from from the, uh, was on the sidewalk. He stopped somebody, had a brief conversation. Tippett gets out of his car, has his hand on the gun, and... Um, uh, he gets shot, and anyway, about 20 people saw parts of this event. Um, the closest person to it was Domingo Benavides, who was driving a, a pickup truck across, coming from the opposite direction, and he pulled over when he saw the confrontation because he was thought he was in danger. So he pulled his car, his truck to the side of the road, and he ducked, so he didn't really see the actual shooting, but he saw the shooter, and he refused to identify him as Oswald, and not long after that, Benavides' brother was shot to death in a, in a bar, and his brother uh, apparently looked a lot like him, so he was, you know, that was like a threat to him. Three years later, he identified Oswald on CBS specials, so he was probably intimidated. And um, the, the pattern is about 10 of the witnesses claimed it was Oswald. 10 said it was not Oswald. They couldn't identify the shooter. Um, some people said there were two men involved such as Aquila Clemens, who's a very important witness, who was uh, a housekeeper um, working in a house right up the street, and she heard the shots. She didn't see them, but she ran out, and she saw two men involved, and neither of them was Oswald, and she was threatened by the Dallas police, and um, she gave a, a terrific interview to Mark Lane and Emil D'Antonio in 1966. You can see it online, and she's never been seen since. She disappeared. Um, we, people have looked for her, looked for any trace of what happened to her. She wouldn't be alive now because she'd be like 105. But um, we worry that, you know, she was silenced. She was threatened. But anyway, so why is it that half the witnesses said it was Oswald and half didn't? Uh, there are problems with all 10 of the people who said it was Oswald for one reason or another. Their uh, stories have problems with them. Um there was a theory that Jerry Rose put out, which I thought really helped clarify things, that he, he theorized that Jack Ruby had partly staged the Tippett murder scene. And um, there were allegations that Ruby knew Tippett, um, not proven, you know, but a lot of... Bev Oliver, folks, the babushka lady she's known as, uh, Bev Oliver was on the show, and she told me Tippett used to frequent Jack, uh, Jack Ruby's Carousel Club. What well, do you think you know, about that? frankly don't believe that she's the babushka lady i think she's oh. uh um that's another i've looked into the bush if you look at the photos for example the babushka lady she doesn't look like a 17 year old uh, strip teaser she looks like a middle-aged stocky woman um so i think that story so i i discount her story about ruby knowing 
Tippett, you know. But other people, many other people have claimed that Tippett was in the uh, nightclub and all that. But Ruby knew all the Dallas, most of the Dallas policemen. He was the mob's bagman to the Dallas police, so it wouldn't have been surprising if he had known him. And um, I spent a lot of time on Tippett's connections to the right wing milieu in Dallas. He worked for Austin Cook, who was a right winger, John Birch Society member, who ran a uh, barbecue place uh, uh, near the police station where Tippett was stationed. So all the policemen frequented this uh, barbecue place, as well as a lot of the right wingers in Dallas, such as Bill Alexander, the deputy attorney, uh, um, deputy um, DA, who was a fanatical right winger. And um, Austin Cook was involved with Ralph Paul, who was a business partner of Ruby, who was a suspicious character in this whole thing. He financed Jack Ruby. He was probably mob connected. I interviewed Austin Cook, who was a very amiable fellow, and he uh, kind of acted like, oh, gee, I didn't know much about the right-wing scene. I went to some um, uh, meetings, and I knew General Walker, who was another big right-winger there. You know, So there are a lot of connections, and then he employed Tippett as a security guard. And um, so Tippett at least had the opportunity to meet a lot of characters in that barbecue. That's probably where he made connections, maybe more likely than the nightclub. But somehow they they zeroed in on Tippett as somebody who, who they recruited into the conspiracy. Tippett was a plotting, uh, uh, not too smart, um, not too accomplished policeman. He'd never been promoted in 11 years. And uh, he had PTSD from World War II. And one of his problems was he couldn't look people in the eye. <clears throat> he had that problem, which is fatal, uh, you know, part, part one reason possibly he was shot. Um, for a policeman, you have to be able to look people in the eye and see what's going on. And uh, so he had some personality problems, and uh, uh, he had a mistress, Johnny Maxie Witherspoon, who I interviewed at length, who was very uh, forthcoming. <clears throat> and um, Tippett, oddly enough, his, he and his wife owned two homes, which is kind of unusual for a guy who was making, I think it was $494 a month. So they had some financial burdens, uh, and how they were able to meet their mortgage is kind of hard to know. And so he was susceptible to uh, uh, bribery or other kinds of economic coercion. And the the, the affair with Johnny Maxie Witherspoon was uh, reaching a, a kind of a climax. Uh, she got pregnant. Um, well, right at the time of the assassination, she discovered she was pregnant, which would be about two months into the pregnancy. And she had an estranged husband who was following her and Tippett around, uh, Steve Thompson. And uh, um, Witherspoon was the name of her later husband. And some people have speculated Steve Thompson killed Tippett. And some people have even speculated that Johnny Maxie Witherspoon killed Tippett. I don't believe she did. She told me she didn't think her husband killed him. She said her husband looked a lot like Oswald, oddly enough. Um, I think he was on the way to work at the time. I don't think he killed Tippett, but, uh, you know, uh, there, there are a number of possible suspects in that case. Uh, what I, I concluded was I think Ruby was um, mixed up, and that was part of his job was to recruit this. And So why Tippett was killed, we'll go into that in a minute, but um, a, a number of those 10 witnesses had connections to Ruby. They had worked for him. They knew him. They socialized with him, et cetera. Uh, like Mrs. Markham, for example, uh, he knew her uh, from her waitressing job, and he could have arranged for her to be on the scene. She she lived nearby, and she walked that route every day to get to her bus, which was coming 
uh, at the, you know, she she wouldn't have, for example, if Tippett were killed at 115, it would be highly unlikely Mrs. Markham was there because her bus came at 112 every day and she wouldn't miss her bus to go to work. You know, she would get there a few minutes early. And, uh, but she, she was another Ruby connection that he could influence. And, uh, uh, but I think that there were there were witnesses who saw a police car in the alleyway where Tippett pulled up was right in an alley. He stopped blocking the alley, which might be significant, between two homes. And there was an alley that went all the way to Jefferson Boulevard, which is, you know, two blocks up. And um, the police car could have pulled into the alley from Jefferson Boulevard and then backed up through the alley, which is apparently what happened. People saw that happen. And um, Tippett might have, uh, well, uh, I think there were two policemen in the car, one of whom shot Tippett. Uh, well, one, one, two, two men in the car, let's put it that way. Uh, one was a policeman and one might have been a, a civilian. And I come up with some names of uh, people. I think Harry Olson might have been the policeman. He was a, a strange policeman who was in Oak Cliff at the time. And he gave uh, uh, a kind of uh, misleading statement about where he was at the time. He was fired by Chief Curry of Dallas uh, in December 63 and told to leave town, which is interesting. And he wound up in California and he was a, a, a kind of a, a dangerous character. One of his things that he did was the night of the uh, uh, assassination, he spent three hours in a car, parked car in a, in a parking lot in downtown Dallas with Ruby and Kay Coleman, who was a Ruby stripper, who was his girlfriend. Uh, Harry Olson's girlfriend, and they were egging Ruby on to kill Oswald, and they they actually admitted this. So that was part of his job, and and so um, uh, Harry Olson's established to have been in Oak Cliff. Uh, there was a hoodlum named Daryl Garner, uh, who's who went by the name Dago, and he was a Ruby uh, associate who who did uh, crimes for Ruby. Uh, Ruby was a gun runner, among other things. And um, <clears throat> Garner was apparently in that racket and was a thug who had done a lot of, a lot of criminal activities. And um, he gave a long interview to Mark Lane at one point. He wanted Mark Lane to represent him because Jim Garrison was investigating Garner. And it was a very revealing interview. You can find it online. And um, he threw out all kinds of wild um, uh, insinuations he claimed <clears throat> that he knew uh, Clay Shaw, who was Garrison's target in the, in the trial, and that Shaw was involved in the assassination. That's still not totally proven, but Shaw was definitely CIA. And he said Shaw tried to recruit him to be the shooter. He didn't want to do that, but he was he he, he knew about the plot, and uh, he claimed that um, Oswald was gay. He went into all kinds of stories about that and. Uh, but he he um, he was the suspect, the lead suspect of the FBI in the shooting of uh, Warren Reynolds, who was a witness to the Tippett shooting. He was a man who worked in a used car lot about a block away, who saw the shooter running away, or one of the shooters, and um, pursued him and lost him. But he he refused to identify the person as Oswald. And uh, then in January of 64, the FBI came and, and tried to get him to identify the guy as Oswald, and he still refused. And then the next night, he was shot in the head by an intruder in his uh, business and miraculously survived. But he got the message, and then he identified the shooter as Oswald. 
And the FBI thought Garner had done the shooting. And Garner had been at the used car lot making some kind of a scene. It was claimed it was some kind of business dispute or something, but, you know, uh, he was also... Uh, Garner Garner's alibi was was a, a woman who uh, was arrested sometime later and then supposedly hanged herself in prison in, in the I mean in, in the Dallas city jail, which is suspicious. So there are all kinds of suspicions around Garner. Uh, so I, I consider him a likely suspect. Recently, John Armstrong, who wrote Harvey and Lee, has been looking into this further. I think my research about these police cars has helps for further investigations by other people, which is good. And he, he claims, he thinks the two policemen involved in the tip of shooting were Captain uh, Westbrook and um, uh, uh, Croy, Kenneth Croy. And Westbrook was around Oak Cliff at the time, too. And he was uh, the head of personnel in the, in the police department. It's odd that he would be on the scene. Many policemen wound up in Oak Cliff when the policeman was shot. But uh, Croy was the first policeman officially on the scene. And one of the things that I focused on was there are two women who lived in a house at the corner, and they ran outside when the shooting took place, and uh, they said police, one of the women said policemen were already there, which is really interesting because officially no policemen showed up for about, I think it was 12 minutes, the official story. Tippett was taken away very shortly by an ambulance because the, um, the ambulance was, was literally like two blocks away. Uh, at a funeral home, uh, they had a contract for uh, picking up dead people, and so they got there real fast. And their uh, Tippett's death certificate has him dead at Methodist Hospital at 115, and then they crossed it out and changed the number, et cetera. But uh, so there were policemen already there, or maybe a policeman, and um, it is possible that Kenneth Croy was that policeman, and maybe uh, according to Armstrong, he thinks maybe Croy was the one who shot Tippett, while the other policemen stayed in the car, because um, uh, the witness um, Jack Tatum, who was driving by, saw uh, the shooter, once Tippett was shot on the ground, the shooter went over and looked at him to make sure he was down, and then he fired a shot point blank into his head from close range, as, as the coup de grace, as the House Select Committee put it. And they, they provocatively pointed out that that's a signature in gangland executions. And so they were implying that there was something very suspicious about that method of shooting, but to, to make sure the guy is dead, but, you know, yeah. com, folks. There you will find a link to tonight's guest book cover, Into the Nightmare, My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett. It's author and our guest tonight, Joseph McBride, all the way from California tonight, where it's certainly warmer than it is here. A lot of questions here. Now, um, motive for killing Tippett. Usually when somebody gets offed by the mob, if it is a mob hit, it's because there's more than one reason. Now, I suspect part of that reason would be to set up Lee Harvey Oswald as a cop killer, which would justify having him murdered by the police. Mm -hmm. Probably to silence some role that Tippett may have played. This is just speculation, folks, mm -hmm. in the assassination itself. What are your, what's your perspective on that? And then I want to talk about the bullets that were signed and they disappeared as well. Yeah. Well, the motive is it's, 
still speculative. Uh, you know, like a lot of this case, we know a lot, a lot about it. Some people say, well, we'll never know what happened. We know an awful lot about what happened, but there's some things we may never know, uh, like the identities of the gunmen in Dealey Plaza. I think there were at least three, maybe more. And uh, uh, unfortunately, when you're dealing with a cold case, more than 50 years old, uh, you know, there's promising avenues that were not followed. The Dallas police dropped the Tippett investigation after two days when Oswald was shot that Sunday. They basically stopped investigating it. I interviewed Jim Lavelle, who's still alive, who was the lead detective in the case. He gave me a lot of interesting comments. Uh, he basically said, uh, Will Fritz, who was the, the chief investigator, that night told him, we better nail Oswald on the, on the Tippett case because basically we don't have a case on him for killing Kennedy. Uh, they didn't have a witness to him in the window. They, they couldn't prove he was in the window, et cetera, et cetera. And the gun was, you know, dubious and they knew that. And so they had to get him on the Tippett case. And Lavelle thought they had him because they had a couple witnesses who would say he shot Tippett. Um, but why this happened? Uh, well, one theory could be the one you mentioned, which is, uh, first of all, to drain Dealey Plaza policemen. When, to, when a policeman is killed, I, I mentioned to Lavelle that when I listened to the police radio tra uh, tape, they seem almost blasé when they're talking about the president was just shot, etc. It's, it's a, it seems rather callous uh, at worst, or at least kind of detached at best. And, but then when they report that an officer was shot, they get all excited and, and the pace picks up and people's voices rise. And I said to, to Lavelle, uh, am I correct in assuming that you guys were more upset about Tippett being killed? And he said, yeah, and I, that's true. He said, when a fellow officer gets shot, that takes precedence. And I said, how did you regard the shooting of the president? And he smiled this little grin and said, uh, well, as, as, as people say, uh, it, it wasn't no more than a South Dallas N-word shooting. And he used the actual word, which was pretty shocking that he would, South Dallas N-word shooting was how they regarded. They really didn't like Kennedy. They didn't care about him. So hundreds of policemen uh, wound up in Oak Cliff. And so that drains Daly Plaza of investigative resources. And um, then uh, I think Oswald was supposed to have been shot in the theater. It would have been a perfect uh, excuse to shoot him if they thought he was a cop killer. Policemen often you know, shoot cop killers, et cetera, suspected cop killers. And, and it was kind of a chaotic scene inside the theater. There were about 10 or 12 civilians in there, and they took their names, and then we've never seen that list. Although we've, a few of them have come forward, and they talked about what happened and how he was pointed out to the police is, is a matter of uh, dispute. Uh, and there was another, the, the police arrest sheet said he was arrested in the balcony, which was not, the official story he was on the ground floor. A second person was taken out the back. So the two Oswalds might have been in the theater at the same time. And theaters are often a place where spies have rendezvous where they can meet their contact. Oswald was waiting for somebody probably, and he showed evidence he was looking around trying to see who, who might be his contact. But when they, when they arrested him and started scuffling, uh, policeman uh, Nick McDonald uh, uh, seems like he might have shot him, but um, Oswald uh, scuffled with him and, and made it hard for him to fire his gun. And he also had the foresight to shout, I'm not resisting arrest, I'm not resisting arrest. And since there were civilian witnesses, if they had just gunned down in cold blood, it would have uh, looked bad. So he survived. 
Dwight McDonald, the literary critic, talked about Oswald's miraculous survival for 48 hours in the custody of the Dallas police. Uh, it was a real problem that they had him alive talking. And they took him to the police station, started interviewing him. They didn't tape record the session, so we don't really know what he said except for secondhand reports from policemen and others. And uh, But he gave that, he, he was hauled back and forth in the um, police station and gave some comments to the press on television. And I, I was watching at 7.55 p.m. when he said, I'm just a patsy. And I believed him. I didn't believe the story from the first day. I ran to a radio. I was a high school student in Milwaukee, and I ran to a radio by 12.40 p.m. And uh, they were reporting for 20 minutes on the network news that the shots came from the front. They said it was the railroad bridge or the the hill in the front, you know, or that area. And then by 1 o'clock, they started reporting the shots came from behind. Uh, Texas School Book Depository was identified. And, I, you know, I was already a reporter at a young age. My parents were reporters, and I found something fishy that they would change the story without explaining it if they'd had an explanation of it. Uh, and Or if they had said shots came from two directions or something, it would have been more credible. But they just suddenly changed it, and that put a red flag up in my head. And then when Oswald was, was being interviewed, he seemed sincere, and I believed him. And then when he gave his press conference at midnight and said he didn't do it, and uh, he, he wanted a lawyer, and they hauled him away. Henry Wade, the DA, who gave me a, also a very revealing interview about how weak the evidence was, he had pretty much admitted that. And uh, Errol Morris, the documentary director who did The Thin Blue Line, uh, which Henry Wade uh, helped make possible, ironically, and they freed a man who Henry Wade had framed because of that film. Um, Errol told me that um, he asked Henry Wade if Oswald had killed Kennedy, and he said, of course not, which is very interesting. And uh, so Wade, Wade and Lavelle gave me quite revealing interviews. I grilled them at, at length, and, and I picked apart their stories. Uh, uh, they're both foxy uh, characters. But anyway, so uh, the other uh, possibility. Now, what I found, uh, one of my revealing um, discoveries was, why was Tippett there? What was going on? Um, he, he was not the uh, uh, policeman assigned to that district. He was way out of his district. And uh, the policeman assigned to that district was William Menzel. And um, I should just tell folks, uh, folks, uh, Tippett was four miles out of his district. Now, I, I do want to come back to um, the Oak Cliff murder and, and what we're discussing right now, but I, I wanted to get into the, because uh, I had mentioned them before, the bullets that were signed oh, yeah. by one of the officers and they simply disappeared. I mean, there's some alarming stuff going on here, and they nailed Oswald to this murder. Well, aside from the timing problem, and if you put the eyewitness issues aside, the ballistics exonerate Oswald uh, because the ballistics don't match at all with the alleged murder weapon. The, the, there was an FBI witness who was a very honest witness before the Warren Commission. He said he could not prove that the bullets that they recovered came from the pistol. And uh, they, uh, there was a report that the policeman was shot with an automatic weapon. Um, uh, and, and then uh, there were reports that an automatic weapon ejects shells uh, you know, automatically uh, they fly out of the gun, whereas uh, with a pistol you have to empty them. And some people said they saw the shooter empty the shells as he left, which is kind of odd. Why would you do that and leave incriminating evidence r right there? But um, I found evidence that um, on the scene, 
there were the bullets, uh, the expended shells, I'm sorry, were, uh, were, were right there on the street, close to each other. Uh, and then they allegedly, the ones that were entered into evidence were found uh, on the grass later, you know, hours later. So it's suspicious that these uh, the shells were found in different places. And uh, anyway, they didn't come from that gun. Oswald didn't own that gun. You know, it just doesn't match up at all. And there were problems with the identification of the uh, shells that were found. Um, there was a policeman who uh, uh, claimed that he marked the, one of the shells, and then he gave conflicting stories about it. And Lavelle said the guy was a liar, et cetera. The whole of ballistics is a complete mess. So if Oswald had been put on trial, he probably would have, if he'd had a fair trial, they would have had a hard time convicting him. Absolutely. And, you know, I was reading one of the articles that uh, you had written for CTKA, Jim Dutillo Jr.'s site, and it's a brilliant article. And I just want to take this quote from it that you wrote. Edgar Lee, Edgar Lee Tippett, who is J.D. Tippett's father, made another important revelation in our interview. He told me what Marie, who's his wife, learned from the other policemen about why he had not made it to the scene of the shooting on 10th Street. The other boy was in an accident, a little wreck. They both started, but J.D. made it. He'd been expecting something. Now, this is the ominous part, folks. The police notified both of them Oswald was headed that way. Right. Now, the reason why I say it's ominous because, A, how did the police know that it was Oswald? How did they identify him so fast? And was Oswald being hunted then at that point to be arrested? Why were they <coughs> hunting him? Was it for yeah. the suspicion of killing the president? They, I didn't know they'd gotten that far. Well, it all seems very weird. And then when I go back and think about the honking at Oswald's house, it sounds like that was a signal for Oswald to head to the... Texas school, uh, not the Texas school book theater, but the Dallas uh, theater. Yeah, in, Texas theater in Oakland. Obviously, the police were waiting for him. Well, yeah, it's I think... It's almost like he was being driven to be assassinated. I think the background here is Oswald was uh, an FBI informant. And one of the things that Henry Wade, the DA, told me that was quite startling was he said the FBI had talked to Oswald the day before the assassination. I said, the day before? He said, well, a day or two before. Nobody knew this. There was a report that Oswald had taken a threatening note of some kind to the Dallas FBI office uh, around the, I think it was the 12th uh, of November. Um, we don't know it's in the note because they destroyed it on the 24th. Uh, but then the, I found in the, one of the Dallas papers the morning of the 24th, right, you know, published before Oswald was shot, that he had been in the, uh, talking to the FBI, I think it was on November 16th. And that point has sort of gotten lost over, over the years. But here's Henry Wade saying he talked to him the day before. I think he was an FBI informant uh, who was infiltrating the plot, who was keeping tabs on them. And he thought, I think Oswald was a patriotic American who was uh, serving his country uh, as a false defector to Russia and then as an FBI informant, probably CIA operative of some kind. Uh, Joan Mellon said he was also working for the Customs Department. Um, a remarkable 24-year-old guy who had a lot of experience and a lot of sophistication, actually. A lot of people think he was dumb because he was dyslexic, but he was not. He was very sophisticated about uh, world events. But he was uh, he was unaware, obviously, that he was being set up as, as the fall guy in this plot. Um, so the plan was, okay, Oswald is going to leave the school book to Monsignor. They must have been 
tracking him to know where he was going. They might have figured that he would go to his rooming house, uh, although they, they couldn't guarantee that, so they had to have tracked him. But I, I, I believe that Tippett and the other policeman, William Menzel, who was the one who was assigned to that district, were told that uh, to hunt down Oswald. What they were told, whether to kill him or arrest him, we don't know. I suspect to kill him or find a good excuse to kill him because uh, that's, you know, they, they probably would have killed him in the theater and then he was killed in the police station two days later. So it's not unreasonable to assume the two policemen might have shot down this guy who they were told killed Kennedy um, or whatever they knew about him. But there are a lot of um, strange movements by Tippett in, in the period between 1230 and 108. Um, he was waiting at, at a gas station in Oak Cliff, which is right at the edge of a viaduct that leads directly to downtown. You can see downtown from the viaduct. You can get there in five minutes, right down to Dealey Plaza if you want to. And, and he was waiting for Oswald to come by. Um, he apparently thought Oswald was gonna be on a bus and the bus went by and there was no Oswald, didn't, didn't stop. So T Tippett took off at a high rate of speed and um, then he radioed in from another location and uh, he, he was then seen at a uh, um, record store near the theater at about one o'clock. He was trying to make a phone call. He, he ran in and he commandeered the phone and he seemed very agitated and picked it up and, and there was no discussion. He may have heard something on the phone or maybe he didn't get whoever he wanted. And he was also seen... Uh, in Oak Cliff, uh, several blocks from where he was shot, he pulled over a car driven by a man named James Andrews and looked in the back of the car as if he was looking for a passenger uh, hiding in the back of the car. And then he didn't see anybody and he took off. And uh, uh, so all this happened like in a short space of time before he was killed. So he was looking for somebody. Mensel, according to Edgar Lee Tippett, who was a very sharp 90-year-old man when I interviewed him, um, told me the story. He, he seemed, you know, baffled by his son's murder, and he struck me as a sincere person who um, wanted to believe the Warren report but found found it hard to believe it. But he said Marie Tippett had been told by policemen that um, they had been pursuing uh, Oswald, and this other policeman, Mr. Tippett, didn't remember the name, but but it was probably Mensel who came to see Marie. Mensel is one of the honor guard at the funeral. You can see a picture of him with the coffin. And uh, Mensel gave some very contradictory stories about where he was at that time. He, he claimed he was having lunch at a cafeteria nearby, and then he heard that Kennedy was shot, and um, he, he just seemed to be very lackadaisical about things. It didn't add up, you know. And um, there was an auto accident nearby, reported, I think, at 112, which was shortly after the Tippett shooting. And Mensel was the guy who was who went to the scene of this auto accident. Um, he arrived a few minutes later, and I wondered if maybe Mensel had the auto accident because Mr. Tippett said the other uh, policeman got into an auto accident, didn't make it to the scene. And Dale Myers, who wrote this uh, book that's what I call the Warren Report of the Tippett Murder, it um, has some interesting information and research, but it's all slanted to, to blame Oswald. It's called With Malice, which signals its intent in the title. Um, he leaves out a lot of evidence that would um, uh, fail to incriminate Oswald, and he puts a lot of the contradictory evidence in footnotes at the back 
they should be examined in, in the main text, but he throws them in the back uh, and then discounts every one of them. Uh, sometimes he gives a reason to discount them, sometimes he doesn't. So to me, it's a very dishonest book. But um, he attacked my book. Uh, he has a website. I normally don't respond to critics. Orson Welles once wrote a response to, about Touch of Evil to a, a London paper and said he referred to, quote, that odious thing, a reply to the critic. <laughs> so I've always avoided doing that. In two instances, I've replied to a critic. One was in, when I wrote my Spielberg biography. An anti-Semitic writer wrote a piece in a, a British paper uh, or British magazine um, twisting some facts in my book to make it look like Spielberg is lying about abu anti-Semitic abuse he took from bullies. And so I felt compelled to write about that. And I felt compelled to defend Mr. Tippett. Uh, Myers impugned his reliability as a witness, etc. cetera. Uh, but he was, because of his age, but he was a very sharp old man, still working on his farm, et cetera. And uh, I should just interrupt you and tell, yeah. tell folks who Dale, you obviously get to know who Spielberg was, folks, but Dale Myers put together this animation piece that was used in a Peter Jennings um, expose, I think it was 2002 or 2003, on the Kennedy assassination. Dale Myers put this uh, animation piece together that was based on what he figured were the shots that uh, emanated in Dealey Plaza coming from the Texas School Book Depository. And basically he said that he measured everything out and showed this graphic that this magic bullet, this Cirque du Soleil bullet, I call it, actually could be possible. And uh, if you look at the animation, I just want to tell folks, um, I don't find it accurate at all. Kennedy's neck is as long as his torso. And he had to do that in order for the bullet that enters Kennedy's back to look like it's coming out his throat, when in fact, every other test that's ever been done on that magic bullet coming in the back, it always ex exits Kennedy, what would have been Kennedy's uh, chest. So it, it just doesn't add up. But that's who Dale Myers is. Yeah, he won yeah. an Emmy for it, as a matter of fact. So I just want to put that in there as well. Yeah, uh, he also worked with Bucliosi, whose mm -hmm. book of 1,800 pages or whatever is just full of mistakes and errors and omissions and everything else. So that's who Dale Myers is. He, he, Sorry wrote, to interrupt you. he wrote part of the Bugliosi book, according to Jim Eugenio, that Myers at one point was, uh, according to Jim, was going to get credit on the on the cover of the book as a, as a co-author or with, you know, a credit. And then for whatever reason, he's not allowed to talk about it. He didn't get much credit. He gets thanked, thanked in the book. But uh, Bugliosi's ridiculous book he had several people helping him write it you know um but anyway myers is a professional animator as you say his animations are, are fraudulent and fanciful and and uh, leave out a lot of details and twist uh twist the bodies around in the evidence etc to prove the single bullet theory which is a ridiculous theory and kennedy was shot in the throat uh entrance wound according to all the doctors and nurses and then he was shot in the in the in the forehead and the bullet that blew out the back of his head there was a big hole in the back of his head hit him in the right temple and i found one of my most important discoveries uh, myers actually has this document in his book but he doesn't really talk about it is uh, a memo from ah belmont who was the, uh, the head of investigations for the fbi on the night of the 22nd said there was a bullet lodged behind the president's ear and we we're in the process of obtaining it and this was at the time of the autopsy. The official autopsy was happening 
Um, well, it uh, actually hadn't happened. I, I, well, it depends on when the memo was written. There's a time written, but it was around that time. Anyway, uh, that's not that bullet was never entered into evidence. But a lot of the eyewitnesses, including Secret Service men, et cetera, said Kennedy was shot in the right uh, temple, and uh, uh, that fits all fits the evidence. So that bullet was was uh, hidden from the evidence, which destroys the Warren report in that one memo. And I write about it that in depth. I tried to publish an article on that in the '80s. My book, I started my book in '82. And I, I wrote an article on the Belmont memo, and nobody would publish it. So I have that in the in the book, uh, all my findings on that, along with a lot of other things about the Kennedy assassination in particular that I found that you know going through uh, documents at the National Archives and interviewing people, and um, you know as I said, tearing apart the part the uh, police investigation, which was really uh, full of flaws, et cetera, and and, and as well as the Warren. Thing. But to get back to Tippett, uh, so he was, he was... How do we wrap up Tippett? How do we put yeah. him into that scope? How do we put him into that bubble that happened November 22nd, 1963, that whole weekend? Where does, what is his role in it all? Well, one theory, as you, as you mentioned, it is possible he had more involvement with the assassination than other people have uh, speculated this, and I, and I take it seriously as a possibility that he might have been one of the shooters in Dealey Plaza. There was a shooter uh, behind the concrete retaining wall on, on the grassy knoll who appears in the photograph by Marianne Mormon, uh, and it was um, enhanced uh, to, to bring out details, and it's a policeman, a Dallas policeman. Some people say, well, somebody wearing a Dallas policeman's uniform. Well, I think, you know, Dallas policeman. And, and you can see the badge. You can see the shoulder patch. You can see... Uh, He's hatless, but uh, you can see the eyes. One thing that really struck me when I was doing my research was how few photos of Tippett existed. In the Warren report, they had two photos. One was taken in 1952, one in 57. I thought it was odd they didn't have a more recent picture of him. And so I, I, in Dallas, I found uh, in one of the Dallas papers, there was a recent picture of him that appeared in the paper the morning after the shooting. I wondered, okay, why didn't the Warren report have that? And then there was uh, another picture that Larry Ray Harris came up with of, um, a year before. Tippett had aged a lot. He was uh, kind of lean and weathered looking, and his hair had uh, um, gotten thinner. But he had a very distinctive hairline with a kind of a notch on the side of the hair, a very unusual looking thing. And, and the person in that photograph, the policeman, has that exact same hairline. I was very struck by that. And... Um, it is possible that Tippett was the shooter. His, his um, police records were released, and they had only one record of his shooting abilities. You would think that a policeman would have, you know, annual reports on his shooting. They had one from, I think, 1953. It said he was a mediocre shot. And I suspect that document was planted because his father told me Tippett was an amazing shot. He said one time they were walking along, and uh, Tippett saw a... Uh, bird up in a tree far away and he had a 22 rifle he said i'm going to shoot the bird out of the tree and the father said you can't do it and he lifted the rifle and shot the bird and he said it was just a great shot so i think they've covered that up and a tip that certainly could have been there in daily plaza there is some there is some contradictory evidence uh such as uh, Tippett's wife claiming he was at home for lunch that day. Um, it's complicated because she gave many versions of this that are that are contradictory. She wouldn't give me an interview. I, I wrote to her and tried to get an interview. I went to Dallas. She appeared at, a, at an event um, uh, a couple of years ago. They, they did a tribute to him on his 90th birthday, actually in uh, 2000. 
2014. So I flew to Dallas to appear at that, to, to go to that event so I could meet her. And I met her. She seemed very nice. And um, uh, I said, you know, in town briefly, could I come see you tomorrow? And she said, yeah, maybe I'd be happy to talk to you. And then she had this police minder with her. The, the police have always been protecting her from the beginning. And this guy came over and um, Gary Mack, who was the head of the Sixth Floor Museum, who was a, uh, an apologist for the Warren Commission, started shaking his head vigorously at the policeman who came over and uh, said, well, Mrs. Tippett, uh, you know, I'll get back to you because, uh, you know, I'm in charge of her schedule, et cetera. And he gave me his card and, and I'm not sure she has time tomorrow. And so I didn't get the interview with her, even though she seemed willing to, to do it. But she gave reports that were contradictory. And there was a neighbor who gave a report about Tippett being there, which I proved couldn't have happened, you know. So I'm not sure that story holds up, but there was also a report of Tippett investigating a crime in Oakliff at 1217. Uh, uh, if was he, Oswald ever asked if he killed Tippett directly? I believe he, yeah, yes, uh, he, he said in public, I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. And uh, mm. he said, I'm accused of shooting a policeman. That's all I know, you know, at his midnight press conference. Uh, they, they said to him, uh, did you shoot the president? And he said, no, I've not been charged with that. Uh, all I know is that I've been accused of shooting a policeman. And um, some some reporter yelled out, you have been charged, you have been charged, like very angry, like he was lying. Lavelle told me he was telling the truth because they hadn't charged him with shooting Kennedy. And one of the things I found, there was an FBI document that Oswald was never arraigned for the killing of President Kennedy. He was only arraigned for the murder of Officer Tippett, which was very interesting and strange. Uh, but it goes along with what Lavelle told me. They thought they had a case on him for killing the policeman, but they really didn't have a case on him for killing the president. And uh, but the evidence uh, on the Tippett shooting was so thin. I mean, they really had to let him get killed because they didn't have a case. They they had to dispose of him. But the danger was that he would talk and implicate what whoever he knew had set him up, and talk about the FBI's role and and uh, whatever else he knew. And they couldn't let him do that. And who knows what he was saying in private? We don't know in these interrogations. So Tippett could have been involved in the shooting in Dealey Plaza and then made it over to Oak Cliff and his second part of his job was to eliminate Oswald. I'm not saying that it's true that Tippett was a shooter. It's possible. There's some indications it could be. Uh, but it's one of those things that we need more evidence on. And as you say, it's a 50, 57-year-old cold case now at this point. Actually, not quite that. 50, uh, 55. 56? Somewhere around there. I'll say one more thing. I think that it could yeah. have been uh, the plan to have Kennedy, Tippett, and Oswald all killed within an hour. And in fact, you had Kennedy and Tippett killed within 39 minutes of each other. And then Oswald w w was supposed to be shot like shortly after that. They, I would have disposed the case very neatly from the viewpoint of the Dallas police, and they would have announced that it was all solved and Tippett was a hero, et cetera, and uh, the public might have bought it for a while. It's funny, you know, one of the uh, the first rules of assassination is kill the assassin. Mm -hmm. Any chance you feel, you know, we just discussed Badge Man, and it's funny you mentioned Gary yeah. Mack, because Gary Mack was the one that kind of discovered that Badge Man uh, silhouette, if you will, yeah, he had that Jack, White, the photo. Jack White. Any chance we can place Lee Harvey Oswald in the Texas School Book Depository? Well, he was on the second floor, according to himself and other the people. Sixth floor? No. Shots? Well, there's no evidence of that. Nobody saw him in the window, and uh, 
Um, there's just no evidence that he was up there, and there was evidence that he was on the second floor. And badge man, uh, you know, if, if I mean, there was a badge man, and there was probably somebody firing from behind the fence, and then somebody firing from from the school book depository, not that window, but probably another window, and maybe somebody in the Dell Tech's building, too. Um, but uh, if, if uh, Tippett had been the badge man, eliminating him would have been important, as you say, like in the Aquino assassination in the Philippines, they claimed that a guy, when Aquino went out the airplane, he went down the ramp, and they claimed that an airport worker on the tarmac shot him, and they immediately killed the guy. And that was obviously uh, staged. So they often eliminate the assassin, as you say, right away so that they cover up the plot. So that would have been a motive for killing Tippett in Oak Cliff. Uh, I believe he drove into an ambush. The policemen were waiting for him, that other police car and whoever was in it. Uh, uh, and I go into all the people in the book, and, and then there's the Armstrong theory. So I think that the plan was maybe to... Um, uh, just get rid of Tippett, and maybe he could get rid of Oswald while Oswald was running around Oak Cliff, etc. cetera. Uh, maybe they were supposed to be in a gunfight. There was a report that a Secret Service man had been killed in a gunfight in Oak Cliff that persisted on the national news for a while. There, was, um, there were many reports that a Secret Service man had been killed, and then they denied it, sort of, like about 3.30 in the afternoon. But other people have said uh, actually happened. So there may have been another person killed that day, a Secret Service man. I, I wondered if maybe Tippett was actually working for the Secret Service or some other agency undercover and that, that the stories were... Anything's possible. Yeah. You know, it's once you go down that rabbit hole, <laughs> you don't know where you're going to end up. Now, there's no clean way of doing a segue to this. Orson Welles, you worked with Orson Welles. You've got yeah, like two was, minutes. Yeah, one of the great experiences of my life. I... I when I, I didn't really go to film school because we didn't have a film school back in the 60s at the University of Wisconsin. I took three film courses. So so I was writing a book on Wells when, when I was 19. I, I spent four years writing it. And toward the end of it, I went to Hollywood to interview John Ford, who's my favorite director, and I did a book on him. And uh, through a series of just coincidences, Wells was in Hollywood, and I met him through Peter Bogdanovich. And Wells said, we're about to sh start shooting a film. Would you like to be in it? And I kind of stupidly said, uh, is this going to be a feature-length film? You know, I couldn't imagine being in a feature-length film. He said, well, we certainly hope so. And uh, actually, that stupid question turned out to be kind of smart because it's still not a feature-length film. They're still trying to finish it. As we speak, they're having negotiations with Oya Kodar, who owns Wells' share of the film. And this has been going on for two years now. And I'm told there's some hope that this will happen soon. But, um, you know, we've been hearing this for a long time. Um, Netflix uh, wants to do the film. They've offered $5 million to finish it. it well shot almost all the film. There's just a couple shots left. So that was my film school, and it was a fantastic experience. He, he put me in as a kind of spoof of myself as a sort of naive young film critic following around John Huston asking him silly film buff questions. So it was really a kind of Walter Mitty experience. I've written about that in my book, Whatever Happened to Orson Welles. And my, I did another book called Orson Welles that written at length about that Josh Carp did a terrific book on the other side of the wind. I recommend as well. We'll have to talk some more. I'm just looking at the time that the music's going to start in like 10 seconds, folks. The book was called is called Into Into the Nightmare: My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J. D. Tippett. As always, you can find the uh, book at www.nightfrightshow.com. Our author and our guest tonight has been Joseph McBride. Joseph, you're welcome here anytime, my friend. I'm so glad you came on. There's stuff that I learned tonight I had no idea.
Mm, thank you, Brent. It was really fascinating and really great to talk to you. And I'd be very happy to come on your show anytime. Absolutely, my friend. There's the music right there. You take care, and uh, I'm going to be in touch with you. I write music for uh, television and film. I'm working on a project with Derek Jacoby right now, so I'll talk to you off air. Okay. Talk soon. Take care. I'm Brent Holland for Night Fright. See you next time. Accounts for yours right now, nightfrightshow.com.